when I think about the work that I'm doing now, it's really critical to ensure that technology innovation is harnessed for good. And I think there's a lot of good that can come out of technology, particularly for women, to make it easier, to make it more accessible, and to really create those connections, which can be very challenging for women. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A formative moment in high school set Lori Zephyrin in the direction of medicine and public health, and she never looked back. And the path has taken her through the White House, the Veterans Administration, and into tiny villages in Africa, always seeking to create better health. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. Yes, sir. All right. So, um, I understand that you met Lori through your shared Aspen Institute Health Innovation Fellowship. Oh, yes, what I did. Was the, after all, like, giving me that <laughs> crap about Harvard, this seems even more elitist. What was oh, that it's like? Oh, so fancy. Now, actually, it's, it was an amazing program, um, and I did meet Lori there and, and 19 other pretty cool people, where they put together classes every year of random folk who, who are in the mid-career or late career uh, in healthcare in some way to, to encourage them to be, you know, sort of more innovative and different in their thinking. And there's a lot of, you know, leadership stuff as well. It's, it's fascinating and wonderful program. That's where I, your a mentorship program grew out of, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what C-Suite grew out of. That was my project for my fellowship, actually. Wow. Uh, maybe we can, we'll ask Lori what hers was as well. Lori Zephyrin was disappointed to learn that she wasn't destined to be a singer. But fortunately, she locked onto her healthcare destiny in her teens. She is now an OBGYN who, had de- who has dedicated her life to public service and public health, and today is a leader at the Commonwealth Fund, one of the first private foundations started by a woman, incidentally, in 1918. It's a perfect match in many ways, given the Commonwealth Fund's mission to promote a high-performing healthcare system. Lori, it is great to have you on the show today. It's awesome to be here. Thank you so much. So, Lori, had you been a successful singer... I understand this would have been your signature song. <laughs> um, probably only in the shower. She's just a girl and she's on fire. Are you going to sing it for us? That's a great song, though, for you. I know you told me that was one of your favorites. And I think, you know, just thinking about <laughs> your career, it's like such a perfect, uh, such a perfect documentary lead in. So given that you went the public health route, um, what is your definition of a great performer in the healthcare system? Oh, my gosh. A great performer in a healthcare system is really a performer that puts people first. Um, it puts whether it puts moms first, puts women first, whoever is entering the healthcare system, it really puts them first and, and what they need. But how do you distinguish that for real versus, I don't know any organization remotely connected with health that doesn't assert that they're patient-centric and fundamentally about the patients in general, if not the children in particular. Um, how, what makes it real for you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is at the center of what health should be. Um, but ultimately, what makes it real is 
the one-on-one interaction with the person in the room. So for example, when I see my patients, you know, I often hear, wow, like no one's ever talked to me like that, or no one's ever explained that to me, or I didn't really understand um, anything about my body, or, you know, I haven't come to the healthcare system in over a decade because no one's ever really talked to me, or I felt judged, and now I'm coming back. And so if we truly put people first in our healthcare system, I wouldn't still be having those conversations with my patients. So Lori, you told me that you were drawn to healthcare because you heard a healthcare worker teach a class or your high school class while you were very interested in STEM already, but that she just lured you in with with discussions about the social aspects of health and the context of, of the, the crack academic, the epidemic that was going on during the time. Tell us about that. What captured your imagination? Sure. sure. So, um, I mean, in terms of upgramming, I would say I had a very typical immigrant upbringing and, and giving back was key. Um, education was key. And so I went to an amazing high school, Brooklyn Tech High School, which is um, a STEM school, I guess, before people heard of STEM and STEAM and really just had um, wonderful experiences um, that were very science focused, but also I was able to enter into several programs where, which actually connected me to people. And so I remember one year, my second year in high school, I think like Mondays I did like a health program and then Fridays I was in some math program, you know, sort of studying the intricacies of just complex math problems. And I love both, but when I was in the health program, they had um, people from the community come and talk about health, right? And I remember distinctly one day it was a woman who came in. She might have been a social worker or a nurse, and she held out her hand and she said, you know, the, the, the babies I deal with are smaller than the size of my hand. And that really captivated me because I just really um, just understood at that time just really the impact of one's social circumstances on, on health. And I kind of had an inkling of the importance of that before, but really that that just captured it for me, and I knew I wanted to have an impact on the health of women. You know, it's been finally. It seems to me that we're recognizing, at least out loud, the role of social determinants on health. Why do you think it's taken to get taken so long to get to this point? Why, why is it now that we're talking about it, and not you know a hundred years ago? I, you know, I think it's more um, visible now. Uh, because just the data is there and people are talking more about it. But it was something that, you know, um, you know, I talked about or heard about early on in my career, and that's what drove me to healthcare. And just really being able to understand the connection between one's circumstances, one's access to education, transportation, housing, and how that impacts health is more profound than any four walls of a healthcare system. And so I think now it's, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question about, um, in exactly keeping with that, given the integrated nature of health and communities, where does the remit of, of, a, of, of a physician end? Or where is it, you know, how do you, I mean, if is a physician responsible for everything or a medical center? You know, there are some, like Kaiser, right, is building housing, for example, for some patients. Given the how tightly integrated medical concerns are with, like you're saying, these broader social determinants, how, what's the proper role for a physician or for a medical center 
you know, where does that end and politics begin? Or where, how, how do you locate the role of the physician in a broader ecosystem um, where you want to be effective? And, you, you know, if, in, in a sense, if everything is your problem, then nothing is your problem. Mm-hmm. So where do you, how do you sort of think about that? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's an amazing question. And I think physicians are obviously critical to healthcare systems, right? Um, and also are nurses and, and, you know, behavioral health providers who could be physicians or non-physicians. And so essentially, we've always structured our healthcare system with the physician at the center of the universe, so to speak. And I think that's a lot to ask for one person. Right. And so ultimately, what we need to move forward towards are having teams working together, right, where you have teams of healthcare providers that include physicians and nurses and also include social workers and care coordinators and also include community health workers. And so so really providing health care is a team approach. And you do have many systems sort of thinking through what that looks like and how can you develop an integrated model of care. And so if you think about community health centers, many community health centers are integrated with the community. Think about the community where the care is provided and have multidisciplinary teams that can also provide that care. And so maybe it's a restructuring of how we deliver care where instead of the physician being at the center of the universe for healthcare, then it becomes a provider and that could be a social worker, could be a care coordinator, and the physician is part of that that team to really serve that patient or that person. Okay, so let me back up. So I know you went to, to med school at a particularly interesting program at City College in New York and met Jack Geiger there, who's a you know a, a amazing thinker in that in the role of of around social medicine and the like. Um, and he became a, a, a real mentor for you. Tell us about that experience, and especially as you did some of your work in Africa, I think it'd be interesting to carry that in because I think it connects to the work you're, or the thinking you're talking about here. Right. So I, um, very early on in high school, decided I wanted to be a physician and, um, and really just um, there was a program at the City College of New York, which was connected to several medical schools in in New York, where it was a seven-year BSMD program and um, focused on training clinicians with an eye towards community health and social medicine and who would be, who would be, who would integrate community in their work and also put community first. And so very early on, I mean, freshman in high school, you know, I was taking really just amazing courses around community health and social medicine and spending summers working um, in the community, whether it was at Harlem Hospital or or doing community-oriented projects. And, you know, one of the other milestones, so Jack Geiger, Dr. Geiger, is a luminary in, in community health and social medicine very early on, leader in the civil rights movement. He went to South Africa and learned about community health centers and brought that back with um, with the team to to uh, to the United States, to Mississippi and others. And so really, you know, thinking of community health and social medicine as uh, a model of care delivery that integrates the community, cons- considers economic access as, as key to health, and really just integrating key issues of social health and medicine together. And, you know, it was with Jack Geiger, you know, I was able to go for a summer 
to work in South Africa with women and their children. And it was really an experience that I considered a milestone. It really opened my eyes to key issues um, affecting or involving access to health care that affect people worth worldwide. I mean, it jump-started my commitment to just global health um, and really thinking about, you know, there are different obstacles, but ultimately the goals are the same. Moms want healthy babies, communities wanting support to raise their families, and the opportunity for education, economic stability, and freedom. And so ultimately, if we think about those human-centric ideals, they're universal globally, and, and health and really thinking how we integrate our healthcare system with communities can really help drive those ideals into reality. In addition to Jack, whose work inspired you? Oh, whose work inspired me? Oh, my goodness. Um, there's oh, a lot of people that have inspired me. Um, I would say, you know, I've also, I've always been um, enamored by the work of Nelson Mandela. I've always been enamored by the work of Alan Rosenfield, um, Doris Weathers, who was an early um, leader and woman in healthcare, a woman of color who just broke the barriers, and many like her who really surpassed obstacles and really had significant impact on underserved communities um, that really just paved the path for for others behind them. Um, you know, my grandmother inspires me, my mother inspires me. Um, so I, every day, like I could find, you know, people that just inspire me just in terms of their ability to surpass obstacles and, and um, really just have impact day to day on people's lives. So Lori, you um, spent a fair amount of time um, in Africa over the years. Um, what do you, you, you talked to me the other day about how trust was one of the most essential aspects to being successful and delivering care there and, and, and also in the U.S. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Trust is critical. And, you know, I've spent um, in any community, it, trust is critical. I mean, if you think about your interaction with your provider, if you don't trust them, you're not coming back. It's really trust that brings people back to getting care that they need or seeking care that they need or revealing secrets or concerns or questions that they would never talk to anyone about. And so I would say that trust is universal and it's something that anyone needs and requires and is critical with any relationship. And, you know, as a healthcare provider, building that trust is important. And it's, I find it and I see it as a big part of my, my role. So you went on um, after med school to become a White House fellow. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what impression that made on you and how that impacted your career. Sure. So when I think of key sort of milestones or pivot points in my life, uh, you know, what I mentioned was, you know, the, you know, the interaction with community early on that drove me into healthcare. I'd say another, another milestone was, was, completing my, um, my OBGYN residency at Brigham and Mass General Hospital, which just was ama an amazing opportunity to, to really just hone in my skills around, around being a, a healthcare provider. And I've always been interested in the connection of um, how can we make health systems better for people, right? Um, whether we're talking about healthcare providers or whether we're talking about people using the healthcare system, because 
ultimately, if systems are not working well, then ultimately the people on the ground are going to be impacted. And so I'd say I was on a search, on a journey to really better understand that. Um, and that's why I actually pursued um, pursued a, what I say is, you know, uh, an opportunity for like an MBA with a public health twist to really think about like how to make public health systems better. And, and as I did that, I really just fell in love with the intricacies of policy and health policy and politics and really just the impact of how we frame our policy at the federal level and how that trickles down and impacts health systems and impacts people, particularly as we think about our most underserved. And so um, I was just, um, I, I wanted to serve as a White House fellow and, and, um, and fortunately was selected. And really that just opened my eyes to just how policy and politics and healthcare in America, um, the interplay of that and how that can impact care for people, um, particularly when we think about structures and policies in place that can um, help support health care for underserved populations, for actually for all Americans, including underserved populations. So, so let me ask you this. It seems like um, you know, you're describing your medical training where you just seem like a wonderful physician, where you're really sort of so deeply involved in, in, in the nuance of your patients' lives, but then you're also involved in the policy world involving these sort of organizational uh, policy uh, issues. Is it challenging to toggle back and forth? How have you managed to toggle back and forth between those two often very different seeming mindsets? Right, right. It's so critical to be able to toggle back back and forth. Um, So, for example, being a provider on the ground, right? And really being able to understand what patients are telling me, right? And so I can serve as that voice and be able to translate it to policymakers as they're developing policy or incorporating incorporating that as I'm developing policy. And so it's really critical to have those connections because if you're sort of in sort of the, the policy space without that connection to people on the ground, then sometimes that creates not a connection, but a disconnect, right? And so- At least a bad policy. Yeah, yeah. So I've been, I would say that I'm one of the, I mean, people sort of describe me as um, one of those people that can really think through how to break silos and be able to represent different people at different tables. And um, that's something that I see as um, something that I'm fortunate to be able to do and have a responsibility to be able to communicate um, what, I see on the ground and what people are experiencing. So you said that your White House fellowship kicked off with uh, essentially response to Hurricane Katrina. Right. What was it like to to see that close up? Oh, my God. It was, um, you know, so, so um, it was, I mean, so just so, so many words. It was, um, it was challenging to just see um, just the impact of Hurricane Katrina on people's lives. Um, it was um, to see the impact on the healthcare system. I mean, I was actually assigned for my White House Fellowship to the Department of Veterans Affairs. And so I worked with the secretary at the time and his team. And, um, you know, and, and literally on my first day, first week, you know, we essentially went, you know, to 
um, to New Orleans and, and, you know, flew over New Orleans and just to see the city on the ground, it was just heart wrenching under, underwater. It was heart wrenching. And then we were in Jackson, Mississippi, and just to see the impact of, um, of just the, the hurricane on the healthcare system was just shocking. Um, also, I was, I was pretty just amazed to see how a national healthcare system can essentially bring people together, bring resources together to really take care of, of um, the people it's trying to serve um, as well. And so it was just a real amazing for me um, opportunity to be in the middle of health systems in action to be able to that have an impact on on communities. And so, for example, I would say, that, you know, for the VA, I mean, they were able to mobilize nationally, mobilize people um, to um, across the country, healthcare providers that are extremely skilled from pharmacists to nurses to doctors to help respond. They were able to mobilize patients out of um, out of the hospital in New Orleans to other hospitals. They were able to utilize sort of technology to connect the healthcare system, able to mobilize, you know, have mobile clinics and mobile vans to be able to provide resources. Um, and so it just really was just another lesson to me around how we can have um, systems that really support care delivery and support patients on the ground. And so it was an amazing year for me, a great um, lesson and opportunity to contribute in emergency preparedness. And also, um, it was also that year, I started to um, also get immersed in in um, healthcare for women at the VA as well, because it was a new cohort that was growing. And little did I know that that would define my career. So you, I know you, you did practice as a, as a community physician for a while, but public health mm-hmm. on a grander scale called you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about becoming the first national director of the reproductive health program at the Veterans Administration, which must have been really an interesting experience considering the system was fundamentally designed to serve men, and yet you're stepping in at a time when women are becoming a much larger cohort um, in the military. What were the changes that you needed to see happen or you wanted to see happen in order to serve the population better? So for the so the Department of Veterans Affairs um, – was experiencing just an increase in the number of women coming to the healthcare system. I mean, more than doubling. And um, several years after I'd left the VA as a White House fellow, um, the team that I had worked with, they were building out um, women's health at the VA because they needed to respond as a healthcare system. And so it was just an amazing opportunity to create something new um, for, um, for a deserving population um, that really many people hadn't necessarily thought about. And so coming in, and that goes to your point, to your question earlier around, um, you know, being able to practicing on the ground and sort of doing national policy and program development. I also practice at the VA as well. And being able to leave um, and start VA's first national reproductive health program, it was really critical for me to understand what providers were experiencing on the ground and what women veterans were experiencing on the ground. And so, for example, you know, women would come to the VA healthcare system, you know, after having served on the front lines and served in combat and, you know, go to the front desk and, you know, people ask them, okay, where's your husband or where's your father, right? Or to come to a healthcare system where they may not have had restrooms for women or changing tables or providers providers 
that would be able to take care of women or um, or just having very fragmented experiences, particularly for women who may have experienced trauma during their service and now coming to a healthcare system that could potentially re-traumatize them. And so it was really about systems change and about culture change. And so coming in, it was really important for me not to just solely be very siloed and think about reproductive health, but really think about how do we think about culture change? How do we integrate reproductive health into emergency medicine, into mental health, into primary health care? How do we think cross-sectionally across the entire healthcare system and really think through how to ensure uh, uh, experience for women um, that is deserving of their commitment and their service to our country? That seems like such an enormous and important challenge. How did you figure out what to prioritize first? It sounds like the opportunity to do good was extraordinary, but I can also imagine such a situation feeling overwhelming. It was. It's definitely a huge. Uh, it was definitely a huge challenge, and as with any huge challenge, um, it's important to survey the landscape, right? And then think about what are the opportunities for impact. And so very early on, one of the first initiatives that um, that I launched with others was really thinking about how do we address emergency services for women? And so women entering VA emergency departments, how do we redesign care for, for them, right? And really think about, okay, who are the partners that I need? What's the national policy that needs to be created across the healthcare system? And it's one thing to write national policy, but then how do you actually help people implement it? So what are the resources to be able to implement that national policy? Who are the people or health systems across the healthcare system that are a little bit more advanced that could be sort of the first round of people that want to innovate and develop tools and resources and training? And then from there, it's how can those um, systems that are a little ahead of the curve help other systems do that as well? And so... We essentially started with, you know, uh, on, on a, on a, I would say a, a landscape, an assessment, and it was one of those, and, you know, and I've, I'm trained in research, and so, you know, often working with researchers, it's, oh, it's going to take five years to do a study. No, I don't have five years. I have six months. Let's, let's, <laughs> yeah, really. let's you know, these, these are, let's think about, you know, think about who our partners are going to be, which stakeholders need to be at the table, and what questions we need to answer, right? And then based on that, we were able to determine key areas where we would intervene. And so, for example, something as simple as being able to do a pregnancy test Mm -hmm. within, you know, within and get a result in a couple of hours. Seems very basic, but very early on, that wasn't something that was very accessible. And that can be a life-saving tool. And so, essentially, if you can do a blood count in like, you know, under an hour, you should be able to do a pregnancy test in under an hour. What are the policies that need to be created? Right. What are the what are the systems issues one wants to address? It's so interesting because, you know, many people might say, oh, just, you know, we're we're addressing reproductive health. Let's hire a gynecologist and we're done. But if you bring in a gynecologist to a healthcare system where you haven't created the infrastructure around lab, around emergency services, around surgery, you know, sort of the whole range of systemness that needs to be able to support the provider, you're not only going to set them up for failure, but it can have devastating outcomes for the person that comes into the healthcare system. So it was really about thinking about what are the key issues and key leverage points and thinking nationally, what are the key priorities and linking them to national priorities. So you stepped up um, from that role to become 
acting assistant deputy and then acting deputy undersecretary for health for community care, an even broader role with a $13 billion budget, you know, for the VA at a time that it was getting an awful lot of publicity. Um, what was the, you know, legacy you were hoping to leave there? What was the biggest change you oversaw in the, in the bigger role? So that was really, um, so that an amazing, um, experience. So the the part of that part of VA is community care part of VA and um essentially it's VA's payer arm. And um in the work that I had done previously in women's health, a lot of the services that we provide mm-hmm. we we had to provide through VA's payer arm. So for example, maternity care or we were standing up um a new IVF policy, in vitro fertilization policy um for women and that had to be provided through VA's payer arm. And so, mm-hmm. so it's really taking those lessons and applying them on a broader scale. Um, it was really an amazing time to be part of that team um, during a time of transition. I mean, can just as, you know, I'd say the, the almost decade prior, women's health is going through sort of a major transformation. Community health care was going, community care was going through a major transformation as well to really create a more responsive healthcare system that decides which services it can make versus buy um, with thinking through how to have, how to hold our, um, our payer contracts accountable for quality so that we can think of how we're delivering care to veterans on the ground. Um, it was just, I, I really love that role. And it was really an opportunity to, you know, again, think through how to break silos in healthcare, um, how to create um, and help build a new organization um, um, across the VA healthcare system. So, so you went from there to your current role, which is at the Commonwealth Fund, um, which seems like kind of a perfect match in, in many ways, bringing back to your roots around Medicaid and, and policy and the like. Um, what led you to that? And what do you do there? So, um, so at the, the Commonwealth Fund, it's, um, as you mentioned, it's, it's a you know foundation that's been around for about a little over 100 years. I celebrated 100 year anniversary a few years ago, and really committed to creating a high performing healthcare system that improves care for um, underserved populations. And for me, it has been a combination of um, my personal mission to improve healthcare, and then also really think through from a systems perspective how do we bring together, how do we how do we um, develop or support or or inform how policy is made um, and how delivery system leaders make decisions to ensure that they're impacting vulnerable populations? And so I focus on how do we promote payment and policy reform specific to Medicaid. Um, I've um, been I've launched a, a initiative around um, addressing maternal mortality and maternal morbidity. And also really think through how do we promote models of comprehensive primary health care that integrate community, integrate um, the needs of underserved populations, um, integrate um, digital and 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 um, and new innovations in healthcare. Super. So we started this conversation talking about our shared Aspen Health Innovation Fellowship experience. What was your project? Tell us about that. So my project was really focusing on um, a lot of the work around how do we build a comprehensive primary health care system for women. Um, and as part of the project, um, 
I started a, a mini policy lab at NYU, Reproductive Health and Health Systems Lab, um, which we um, rolled out for about a year or so. And a lot of that work, actually, um, we are continuing. I'm continuing through the Commonwealth Fund, um, which is really thinking through how do you, how do we push forth um, a model of healthcare that incorporates women, that really thinks of women's health across the life course and really considers primary health care as the foundation of care for women and how do we better integrate women's transitions, whether it's maternity or, or maternal health, um, into the transitions as well. I, uh, I know that we're running out of time, but I... Probably way over time, but I just have to ask. Um, you know, you mentioned at the end there about uh, the role of digital, and you know, this is being a health and technology uh, podcast. I'm really curious how someone with your perspective, who again has such a clear understanding of the nuance of medicine, the complexity of people's lives, what do you see as the role of technology, and what specific examples have you seen where it has been able to positively impact health? Right. So I'd say um, technology is really critical to healthcare, and we need to be very cognizant as we are building technological innovations. We are not leaving people out of those innovations, right? And so when, um, and for example, if I think back to some of our work at the VA, um, it was very clear early on that a lot of the technical technology innovations at VA, we needed to be able to incorporate women into those innovations, right? Or think creatively about those innovations to make sure that we are addressing key issues relating to women. And so, for example, the electronic health record at the VA, um, part, of, part of my role very early on was to really think through how do we integrate what women need into the electronic health record? How do we provide decision support, for example, to providers that may not have traditionally taken care of women that are now taking care of women who are of reproductive age and who could be on medications that could be potentially harmful? And how do we create um, um, technology that can support providers in, in giving them um, the care that they need or, or entering into those care agreements? When I think about the work that I'm doing now, it's really critical to ensure that technology innovation is harnessed for good. And I think there's a lot of good that can come out of technology, particularly for women, to make it easier, to make it more accessible, and to really create those connections, which can be very challenging for women. So you've spent your whole career, or most of it anyway, focused on women, and of course, you end up with two sons. And I'm curious, are they more impressed by your career? Are they more connected to that or by your penchant for triathlons? <laughs> I'm not even I, I'm not even sure my, my sons are aware of my career. I also grew up with two brothers. <laughs> so, you know, so here's <laughs> to being surrounded. <laughs> so, you know, I think they're, you know, they they just uh, they, they know a lot about um they just know a lot about, you know, what I do. Um, <laughs> but they're, I mean, they're more interested in, like, you know, when they can, like, you know, compete in their first triathlon and 
they want to like work out with mommy and oh, hang great. out with me. Which that's is awesome. Kind of fun. Well, Lori, thank you so much for the time today. It was so much fun to talk to you. I always learn new stuff so every time I talk to you. Really you interesting. Um, so uh, thanks for being on Tectonics. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Today's guest, Lori Zephyrin, was speaking to us live from her home in New York City. What a fascinating career trajectory and the different things she's been involved in. And it's so interesting because we've had people Mm -hmm. who've been really experts on sort of organization, but a lot of them have been, not all of them, but many have been sort of like MBAs, the person who runs one medical, Mm -hmm, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking. Amir, yeah. Right, right. You know, extraordinary person. But here's someone who I think brings the additional element of a practicing frontline physician mm-hmm. who really clearly brings and imbues her um, her work with the experience of taking care of individual patients and really bringing that frontline provider perspective. I, I don't think there's any substitute for that. Well, I also think it's so fascinating to think about, you know, walking into the VA, which was designed a long yeah. time ago for a very different population. Bunch of dudes. <laughs> and thinking about how do you take a step back and, and rebuild the system so it serves everybody. Um, it's, it's fascinating. You know, it's, and it's really what we need to do in healthcare too, you know, thinking about how do we redesign the system to serve everybody. It's, it's such a great proxy for that. I, I find it fascinating. Plus, she's just a wonderful human being. Um, anyway, uh, having said all that, uh, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And please remember, give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. Help others discover it. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin and her writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful, as always, to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. See you later. Take care.